Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Don't cross the bridge. Don't cross the bridge. A man shouted those words at me, and no doubt countless other people, when I was just a kid. Okay, he didn't shout them at me, he didn't know I existed. He was but a voice on a record made to provide spooky ambiance for children's Halloween parties. I happened to be hosting one, meaning my parents were hosting on my behalf, and they had bought that record. And all of these years later, I still wonder who that imaginary man was supposed to be speaking to. He's not part of a story. The record as I remember it consisted largely of instrumentals and creepy sound effects like hollow footsteps, cawing crows, creaking doors, and rattling chains. I'm sure some other people spoke up from time to time as well on that record to say something cryptic, but his words are the only ones I remember. He sounded so urgent. Don't cross the bridge. I managed to sell a story loosely inspired by those words. It was a rework of a story I had tried years and years before, when I first got serious about writing. In the original version, a driver heard the voice and eventually encountered its owner, a waterlogged corpse while trying to drive across the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway at night. For those who don't know, that is the longest continuous bridge over water in the world. For part of it, you can only see water on either side of you, no land in sight. It's a bridge I crossed as a passenger on a few trips to New Orleans as a boy. I never enjoyed that part of the drive particularly one time when a sudden downpour reduced visibility while we were in the middle of crossing. When I reworked the story, changing much of the plot and removing direct reference to my good friend who warned someone not to cross the bridge for no apparent reason, I switched the setting from the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway to the Atchafalaya Basin Bridge, also found in Louisiana. It's another bridge I crossed as a passenger in my youth that seemed endless to me at the time. Instead of being surrounded by a massive lake, the Atchafalaya is surrounded by swampland. I've never crossed the Pontchartrain as an adult, but I have driven over the Atchafalaya Basin Bridge in recent years. I found myself far less mystified by the length of the bridge then possibly because I had grown-up motorist concerns to deal with, such as driving safely in two lanes of traffic sends a roadside shoulder to use in case of emergencies at a speed most of us likely take for granted as not being all that fast, perhaps even slow by modern highway standards. But 60 miles per hour is more than fast enough to be considered dangerous. 
especially when you're amidst other vehicles traveling at the same speed, sometimes within arm's reach of you, sometimes closer, sometimes operated by people who are far more reckless and willing to take risks than you are, all within a space that can only be so forgiving of errors, carelessness, or just bad luck. In the previous episode, I brought up mortality rate statistics that indicate how comparatively dangerous roads can be for something that most of us do on a regular basis. 38,824 people died in car accidents in the United States in 2020, a year when you'd presume there were fewer people on the roads and therefore conditions would have been a little bit safer, but that was actually an increase over the previous year. And the thing is, despite there being more cars on the road now than there ever have been before, driving at legal speeds that are considerably higher than they were in decades past, those figures are still markedly lower than the worst year on record, which comes from half a century ago. In 1972, 54,589 people died on American roads. For some perspective, that is, in a single year, about 93% of the total U.S. fatalities from the 20-year span of the Vietnam War. And it's not like 1972 was an anomaly. We spent over half of the 70s and a decent chunk of the 60s north of 50,000 vehicle deaths annually. Yet we don't view roads as all that frightening, possibly because we can't afford to view them that way. They have become too essential to our lives. Nonetheless, there is a long history of roads being viewed as strange, dangerous, or both, in ways that range from rational to otherworldly. The term highway robbery is used almost exclusively in a metaphorical sense these days, but has its roots in the activities of the highwaymen in Europe and beyond, thieves who preyed on travelers on roads both well-trafficked and also isolated enough to make their work a little less difficult. While they inspired the legend of the lovable rogue Robin Hood, at least one of them, per a reported incident from 1781, employed the phrase, your money or your life, a clear threat made a touch more interesting by the surely erroneous implication that their interests and your options are purely dichotomous. Either I'll take your cash and other material valuables, or I'll take your life. I'm pretty sure a more accurate phrase would be your money or your life in addition to your money. I digress. The key point here is that these were armed, deadly criminals. Much like pirates, they have been romanticized and even made heroic, and you can find a couple of real-world examples of such men and even women living up to that standard. But odds are, if you were accosted by a highwayman, you weren't going to run into the gentlemanly sort. More likely, you'd run into a man threatening to kill you at gunpoint, knife point, or if they were using a bayonet, essentially both. And it's entirely possible that this man was a war veteran with experience in killing. Sticking with legendary roadway robbers, albeit on the infinitely less romantic side, you have the Sawney Bean clan of 16th century Scotland. The absolute worst-case scenario for what was essentially a familial team of highwaymen and women, Alexander Sawney Bean, his wife Agnes, and any of their offspring who were of age and able to participate 
would ambush travelers, take their valuables, take their lives, and also take their bodies to be eaten later. The almost certainly fictional family of cannibals proved an influence on the films The Hills Have Eyes and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and therefore also the many films inspired by those two movies, such as the film Wrong Turn. For the main characters of each of the three films mentioned, with Wrong Turn making it evident in its title, the horror begins with an encounter or incident on the road. In The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first sign of trouble comes in the form of a hitchhiker, a type of person and activity that many of us were warned about years before we reached driving age. Interestingly, it's seen as dangerous from both sides. It's unsafe to pick up a hitchhiker and unsafe to be a hitchhiker who gets picked up. In horror fiction, it's rare to see the kind of hitchhiking connection made by Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Atkins in John Carpenter's The Fog, where there's not even a real hint of a threat posed by passenger or driver. It's likewise rare for hitchhiking to appear as breezy and jaunty as the Vanity Fair song Hitchin' a Ride makes it sound, at least if you're only focusing on the chorus and tune, not the actual verses. The lyrics actually paint a sad, though not menacing, picture of a broke guy trying to thumb a ride in a downpour, watching car after car pass him by, wondering why there isn't at least one person who'll stop to help. Maybe, unbeknownst to him, he's lucky that no one has pulled over to pick him up. Would you invite yourself inside the home of a total stranger and then ask him to lock the door so that you couldn't get out if you wanted to? In a sense, this is what you're doing when you accept a ride in an automobile from someone you don't know. Not every hitchhiker in fiction turns out to be the absolute epitome of psychopathy that is John Ryder from the film The Hitcher. Nor is every driver the degree of madman that is the villain in the film Road Games. But usually, one or the other, in a horror or thriller story, is at least going to make you feel a little uneasy. In the real world, most accounts of murder involving hitchhikers seem to involve murderous drivers and victimized riders. From California's Edmund Kemper and Patrick Kearney in the 70s, to Australia's Ivan Milat in the late 80s and early 90s, to a host of others. This is the more common type of deadly dynamic, but not the only way it plays out. An older serial killer, James Weyburn Hall, was a murderous hitchhiker. A bit of a modern highwayman, his apparent motive for killing each of the men who picked him up was robbery. Still, the James Halls of the world are in shorter supply than the Edmund Kempers and Ivan Milats. The very nature of hitchhiking places the hitchhiker at more of a disadvantage than the driver. The hitchhiker is the one in need of something that the driver has the option to provide. The driver can also measure up the stranger from a basic physicality standpoint far more easily and earlier than the rider can. Obviously, this doesn't mean a driver has no need to be wary of picking up a hitchhiker, far from it. But generally, in short, 
someone with a car and means to get wherever they'd like to go has at least that much of an advantage over someone walking alone along the side of the road, desperate for a ride. Maybe that's why, in the past, I personally have felt safe giving a ride to a stranger in need on four separate occasions, nobody tell my mother. None of them were the stereotypical hitchhikers in the sense of being drifters or people looking to travel a long distance, happy just to go as far as you're willing to take them if you can't get them all the way. Two of them were men who were about to miss their bus. One man headed to his new job, the other man trying to catch the last bus of the night that could take him home. They both urgently needed a ride to the next bus stop so that they wouldn't be stranded. In another case, it was just a guy who needed a lift to the gas station and back to his car because he had run out of fuel on the side of the highway. The last one, which made for the longest drive, was a man whose ride home from work had flaked on him and he would have had to walk about 20 miles or so to get home since the last bus for the night was long gone. That was the only one that made me a little nervous. It was late, a longer drive, and into a neighborhood I was unfamiliar with. Still, being the driver gave me a certain sense of security. Also, as I mentioned before, I was in position to measure these potential riders up and feel secure that they were not likely to try anything on me. Very possibly a foolish determination on my part, since I've never really been much of a fighter per se. But I am a big dude, six foot four, solidly north of 200 pounds even back then, and based on what I've read of serial killer types, they aren't typically in the market for someone who's got my size. Lastly, the car I was driving was a simple green Ford Escort, so there was nothing about me or my vehicle that said, this is worth a possible fight and or murder. What I did was still a little risky, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anybody. Despite the driver posing perhaps more of a threat in the realm of the absolutely rational, the idea that picking up a hitchhiker can be frightening is so firmly entrenched in popular culture that we have ample ghost lore supporting it. In that regard, outside of an infamous, brilliant, scarring, splendid scene from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, if you've seen the movie, you know the one. There aren't, to my knowledge, many well-known examples of ghostly drivers who will pick up a hitchhiker. There are so many examples of phantom hitchhikers in modern lore, however, that perhaps the seminal book on urban legends, written by Jan Harold Brunvard in 1981, is titled The Vanishing Hitchhiker. There are several other famous urban legends present in that book that could have been the title if they were worthier. Some that also even involve cars, like the story of the hook or the killer in the back seat. Others are fairly well known, or at least were at the time, like alligators in the sewers, and others still may have been more localized but would have provided a tantalizing title. Far be it from me to pass up a chance to reference San Antonio in my podcast. The story The Devil in the Dance Hall has its U.S. origins here in my city. In fact, I know people who say they have older relatives who were present in that specific club the night the devil is supposed to have made his appearance. I'm saving a deeper dive into that for an episode I have earmarked in Season 3, but I bring it up here because, again, I think that title, The Devil in the Dance Hall, 
would certainly move books off the shelves, especially in the midst of satanic panics in the 80s. But The Vanishing Hitchhiker was still the best choice. It had more reach because it was a story already being told for years in different ways in different parts of the world, much less the country. In Brunvard's book, he says the earliest version of the story he could find dates back to Illinois in 1876, placing the hitchhiker and drivers in horse-drawn carriages and coaches instead of automobiles. The ghostly hitchhikers present in stories around the world range from nameless young people who died on an equally nameless road to the mighty Hawaiian goddess Pele. Whoever they may be, after you've picked them up, they will generally do one of two things. Some live up to the name of the legend and vanish from your car while you're still driving, proving in the moment, to you and typically you alone, that they were a specter. Others will let you drive them to a destination, sometimes the gate of a cemetery, other times a far more innocuous, simple house, and maybe keep something of yours that you have to come back for later. A sweater, for instance, if you loaned it to them after picking them up in the cold. When you return for your item later, if you dropped the writer off at a cemetery, you will find what you loaned them at a grave, the name on the marker matching the name given by your passenger the night before. If it was a house, the person who answers the door will tell you that the individual you're describing doesn't live there anymore. They don't live anywhere anymore. They died some time ago in an accident on the very road where you found them. There are some works where the hitchhiker is more portent of something scary than the actual cause. In two different television works titled The Hitchhiker, one a classic Twilight Zone episode, the other a somewhat underappreciated series that aired on HBO in the 80s, the hitchhikers in question are not responsible for any terror that ensues, but cannot help but be present for it. They are arbingers, not catalysts. But when they keep showing up in places where something's gone bad or someone is scared, it's hard to tell exactly what they are. To be a little more thorough here, Brunvard's write-up of The Vanishing Hitchhiker is probably what brought it to greater attention, but the first attempt to collect the variety of such stories came in a 1942 issue of the California Folklore Quarterly that opens with an incident involving a man named Sam Kearns. He picked up a girl wearing a thin white evening gown who got into the back seat of his car because he had another person riding shotgun with him. She gave him an address to take her to, but before they got there, of course, she vanished inexplicably. In this collection of tales are two variations adjacent to the ones I mentioned previously. In one, the passenger warns the driver of a future event. In another, the passenger is not a hitchhiker, but someone the eventual driver meets at a party, who nonetheless disappears after they've gotten into the car, having agreed to a ride home. I find the latter particularly interesting, because the ghost entertains the unsuspecting person for most of the night, dancing with them, no doubt conversing, and hell, maybe even getting a drink. It's a party, after all. At any point before they're in the car, the ghost could disappear. They could do so right before the living person's eyes, too, to make sure they don't just assume the girl they were talking to left without saying goodbye. Instead, she, it's almost always a she, 
lets the driver get on the road before making it in some way apparent that they were among the unliving all along. The party is the pleasant part. The drive on the road is where the ghost does something scary. Sometimes, in horror stories, roads are associated with horror that is, if not quite realistic, at least more tangible. I mentioned John Ryder from The Hitcher before, a man with vaguely phantom-esque qualities, but who is at least mostly human. While Stephen King has written about paranormal horror on the road in stories like Riding the Bullet, he's also given us maybe far-fetched but still surprisingly well-researched and practical road horror in Dolan's Cadillac. Another famous storytelling Stephen, Spielberg, got his start with an adaptation of Richard Matheson's Duel, which turns the road into a terrifying battleground between an ordinary, mild-mannered motorist and the homicidal driver of a big rig. Roads can be dangerous enough, even in fiction, without ghosts or even without deranged maniacs hell-bent on taking a life. Even so, we do have a penchant for throwing an apparition or some other entity into the mix if we can. I talked about the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway earlier. Once upon a time, legendary Italian director Lucio Fulci was granted permission to block traffic on the bridge long enough to film a scene where two characters in his masterpiece, The Beyond, meet. One of these two, Emily, hasn't aged at all from the 1920s when she first read from a cursed book that blinded her to the early 80s. The other, Liza, is one of our main protagonists. You can probably guess which of the two impossibly appears in the middle of the bridge, causing the other to slam on the brakes. In the slightly incoherent, dreamlike atmosphere Fulci creates, the moment is especially fitting. That bridge, especially as Fulci films it, with no other cars present, could leave someone susceptible to something called highway hypnosis, a drowsy, trance-like state that can invite sleep and or hallucinations and is more likely to afflict those on a long, straight stretch of road. Something somewhat similar appears in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, where the protagonist essentially sleep-drives down a long, flat road at night that, along with a few impossible sights, leaves him to wonder if he's somehow stuck in an imperceptible loop. Even without the potential hypnosis effect, a simple stretch of road that ought to be relatively safe can prove deadly enough to inspire local legends. Per an article that appeared in the journal Africana, written by Edwin Mahandu and Takawira Kazembe, a one-kilometer run of Seke Road in Zimbabwe was the site of 32 fatal wrecks from May 2008 to May 2009. This, along with a few previous incidents in that area that included a bus overturning for no apparent reason, inspired several local urban myths that will quite possibly sound familiar to you no matter where you are in the world. Some people say the ghosts of pedestrians who were run down in the street now appear to other motorists, who in turn try to dodge them at the last second, which just causes yet another accident. Another driver claimed he felt spectral hands grab his and try to force him to steer into a ditch, which calls to mind the phantom hands blamed for crashes on road B3212 in England. Back in Zimbabwe, on Seke Road, another story tells of an incident aboard a combi, a minibus used for public transportation. 
The passenger riding shotgun to the driver wore a hat so low it completely hid his face and just about the entirety of his head. As the bus neared the area prone to accidents and ghost sightings, a woman in back of the bus fell into a trance-like state, claiming to have essentially caught the Holy Ghost, as some of us might say here stateside, except not in a celebratory sense. The spirit was with her now to warn her of a fatal wreck waiting to kill some of those on the bus. She demanded that the driver stop and for every male passenger to remove any headgear they had on. Everyone complied, except for the man in front, the man whose face could not be seen. When another passenger angrily pulled the man's hat off, everyone saw that this mysterious passenger was suddenly headless. He then promptly disappeared, apparently along with the threat of a fatal accident, which he seemed to be there to cause or at least oversee. Many roads across the world have legends of hauntings and curses attached to them, but there is a particular setting, crossroads, that have been traditionally considered the most supernaturally perilous places of all. Places where a wide variety of evils are waiting for you to unknowingly come to them. As stated by Martin Pavel in a 1976 issue of the journal Folklore, quote, Crossroads are associated with the appearance and activities of ghosts, witches, and demons of many kinds. They are a place where mysterious preternatural phenomena occur and magic rites are performed. End quote. From an article in World Literature Today written by Mary Helen Sprecht regarding beliefs among certain Nigerians about roadways, quote, The Yoruba believe that crossroads are liminal spaces, thresholds where humans and ancestors, the living and the dead, exist on a cusp. Even in the modern hustle-bustle of West Africa, crossroads are still places you're likely to find shrines and offerings to the spirits. End quote. Her interest in this particular region of the world's thoughts on certain troubling roads came from Nigerian author Ben Okri's book, The Famished Road, which takes its title from the work of poet Wole Shoyenka that states, May you never walk when the road waits famished. In the opening lines of Okri's novel, he writes of a road that once was a river and that is now always hungry. Blues legend Robert Johnson gave us the song Crossroad Blues, which was recorded here in San Antonio, had to mention that, in room 414 of the reportedly haunted Gunter Hotel. Crossroad Blues is not a confession to the enduring rumor that Johnson sold his soul to the devil himself for his guitar-playing talent once upon a time at a crossroads. Instead, it's easier to trace its lyrics to a different kind of menace that might involve driving. At one point, he references the sundown towns of the United States, places where people of color would be murdered after sunset by backwards-ass racists who are burning, burning, burning if there is indeed a hell. And if you were a person of color in a car at the time, you might find yourself trying to drive as fast as you can without speeding so as to avoid being pulled over and detained in your escape to get away before the dark descended a dilemma captured in the book and television series Lovecraft Country. Even with these real-world terrors in mind, 
The phantasmagorical fears of and fascinations with crossroads have deeper roots, as indicated in the Yoruba beliefs aforementioned, which match beliefs from other cultures across the globe. Even when these beliefs shouldn't impact anyone from a hyper-strict, rational sense, when you more realistically account for emotions as well as reason, such things as burying people who committed suicide at a crossroads as a form of posthumous punishment is likely to have an adverse effect on at least some of their loved ones. This was practiced in England in the 18th and 19th centuries. The unfortunate souls who killed themselves were not only treated as felons and had their property taken by the state, they were sometimes staked through the heart like a vampire prior to burial. The reason for this is explained by Montague Summers, early 20th century author of books on vampirism, demonology, witchcraft, and more. In chapter 3 of his book, The Vampire, His Kith and Kin, Summers states that, quote, It was generally supposed that all suicides might after death become vampires, end quote. Therefore, based on that superstition, it was important to bury them in a place and manner that would inhibit their ability to roam from their grave. The four directions that are standard at a traditional crossroad would make the spirit uncertain about where they should go, in part, according to some, because they would think that one of the paths would lead to hell. So they would remain unsure of where to go through each night until the morning, when the sun would chase them back underground. But there's a catch here, one that appears from time to time in such rituals and lore. In punishing the spirit of the dead, you might empower them in a different way to be dangerous to the living. As Summers stated, Woe betide the unhappy being who happens to pass by when the spirit at the crossroads is lingering there perplexed and confused. Accordingly, after sunset, Every sensible person will avoid all crossroads, since there are no localities more certainly and more fearfully haunted and disturbed. End quote. And you might find even more than just vampiric spirits at a crossroad. Summers says that in Wales, witches slept under any boulder found at a crossroad during the day, only to awaken at night to go about placing hexes, stealing children, adopting black cats, and whatnot. An old Sri Lankan Sinhalese poem, purportedly as translated by English speaker John Calloway, named several different demons that waited for passers-by in places where multiple roads met. And the poem warned specifically that people should be wary of being caught in these areas after nightfall. In Russian lore, according to William R.S. Ralston, it was stated that a reanimated corpse would wait at night at the crossroads to kill and eat anyone it found. A less hazardous but no less eerie bit of lore had it that going to a crossroad between 11 o'clock and midnight on Christmas Eve, good old scary vintage British Christmas Eve, would let you hear voices telling you about what's going to trouble you in the year to come. With crossroads repeatedly referred to as places you avoided after sundown, that ties them metaphorically to the sundown towns referenced in Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues. In that light, our man is likely far less diabolically indebted than poetically purposeful, which shouldn't be a surprise. As I've already stated, many of us traditionally have a tendency to attach the paranormal to places and circumstances that are already perilous and potentially lethal on their own. 
Most of us don't look at intersections now the same way some of our ancestors did. And most of us don't look at or think of roads in general as something scary, despite most of us probably being no more than two or three degrees removed from knowing someone who has been in a very bad, very frightening car accident, if we're not that someone ourselves. But if you look for stories and articles about haunted highways, phantom hitchhikers, and the like, you'll find the classic tales still being circulated and fresh tales being created. Something deep within us still recognizes that these commonly used and essential spaces are also sites where many people, millions, have come to a tragic end. In Clive Barker's Books of Blood, he famously opens with the line, The dead have highways. It's not meant literally, but when you consider all that has happened on the world's many roads and all the stories we tell related to those happenings, it can still feel somewhat and somehow true. The dead, in their own way, have the highways and the side roads and the main streets and more. And they've had them all for a very long time. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Fears podcast, written, produced, and narrated by Johnny Compton. For transcripts and research notes, if applicable for each episode, visit healthyfears.com. Or if you're interested in my writing, my publication credits, and links to some stories can be found at johnnycompton.com. Primary sources for this episode include Martin Pavel's article, The Mystery of the Crossroads, published in Folklore. Mary Helen Sprecht's article, At the Crossroads, published in World Literature Today. An article written by Craig Jackson on the Sawney Bean Clan, found at bbc.co.uk. And the article, Urban Myths Pertaining to Road Accidents in Zimbabwe, written by Edwin Mahandu and Takawita Kazembe. My debut novel, The Spite House, is currently scheduled to be released by Tor Nightfire on February 7th, 2023 and it is available now for pre-order at any bookstore near you. Richard Kadri, best-selling author of the Sandman Slim series and so much more, says of The Spite House, The book is a work of great imagination and humanity, showing both love and terror in a world as real as the dust in the attic of a terrible old house. Thank you to Mr. Kadri for those outstanding words. And if that sounds interesting to you, then by all means, reserve your copy today. The subject of the next episode is Our Fear of What's Out There in the Woods for Anyone Who Is Interested. Until then, one way or another, the next time you're heading out the door to drive somewhere and someone tells you, be safe, give it an extra second of thought. And if you're not already doing so, give it a little extra effort as well. And be safe out there. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.